welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the general surgical curriculum, and the operation we'll be covering today, because this is an operative episode, is laparoscopic cholecystectomy, and we'll also talk about laparoscopic transcystic bile duct exploration and cholecystectomy. So let's get started with laparoscopic cholecystectomy. The indications for laparoscopic cholecystectomy include inflammatory processes such as acute or chronic cholecystitis, symptomatic gallstones, so biliary colic, and biliary dyskinesia. Other potential indications include cholecystolithiasis or previously treated cholecystolithiasis and gallstone pancreatitis gallbladder neoplasms such as polyps or cancers, and there are some potential prophylactic indications such as if a patient has a large impacted stone that's likely to cause symptoms. In patients with sickle cell anemia or hereditary spherocytosis, mostly when they're having concurrent other operations such as splenectomy or other abdominal surgeries. The preoperative preparation for a laparoscopic cholecystectomy should involve reviewing the patient's blood tests and their liver function tests especially, their coagulation studies, and any imaging that's been performed, such as a ultrasound or CTIVC or MRCP. For patients that are obese, you may consider a very low-calorie, very low-fat diet for two weeks leading up to the surgery to reduce the liver size and reduce the risks of the surgery. I'm going to try to run through a bit of an operative spiel now for laparoscopic cholecystectomy. So in an appropriately consented patient, I would position them on the operating table supine with both arms out and I'd make sure to strap the legs and that they were on a radio opaque table. I would be standing on the patient's left-hand side with my assistant to start on the right and the scrub nurse on the patient's right and ensure that I had monitors at the patient's right and left shoulder. The patient should be placed under general anesthetic with endotracheal intubation, and I would perform a WHO team timeout and provide prophylactic antibiotics and make sure the patient had sequential compression stockings placed. And I would prep and drape the patient from nipples to groin. The procedure would go as follows. I would perform an open supraumbilical cut down with a 10 millimeter Hassan port, and I would insert a 30 degree scope and establish pneumoperitoneum. I would place the patient in the head up and right side up position and insert my working ports. So this is a 10 millimeter epigastric port under vision and two five millimeter ports. The first of which I place in the right upper quadrant about two fingers breaths below the costal margin in line with the gallbladder. And then the right lateral port I place laterally, um, which will be my fundal retraction port. I then grasp the fundus of the gallbladder with a wave grasper on a ratchet and I give this to my assistant to retract towards the patient's right shoulder. 
If the gallbladder is difficult to retract because it's very inflamed and distended, then I'll aspirate the gallbladder. And I do this by using my subcostal port with the trocar to insert into the fundus of the gallbladder. And then I insert the sucker through this to avoid spilling bile into the peritoneal cavity. And then I will grasp that hole with my ratcheted grasper to retract towards the right shoulder. If the duodenum or stomach is interrupting my view, I'll also ask the anaesthetist to insert a nasogastric tube. I'll divide any omental adhesions to the gallbladder and then have a look at the retraction, which should reveal ruvius sulcus and the base of segment four. A horizontal line drawn between these two structures is my uh, line of safety, and I'll make sure that my dissection commences above this plane on Hartman's pouch. I use a Johans grasper with my left hand, which I use to retract Hartman's pouch, and I initially start by pulling this medially and upwards in order to look at the back wall of the gallbladder. I start my dissection posteriorly by incising the peritoneum with a hook diathermy, and I extend this incision up along the side of the liver. And I then continue this posterior dissection and dissect the fat at the junction of the gallbladder and cystic duct posteriorly, and this will facilitate my anterior dissection later. And I do this with a combination of hook diathermy and also using the sucker to sweep the tissues away. Once I've completed my posterior dissection as far as I can go, I move my intention anteriorly. And I do this by using my Johans grasper on Hartman's pouch and pulling downwards and laterally in order to open up the hepatocystic triangle. I divide the peritoneum anteriorly with my hook diathermy, again above the line of safety, and I will extend this incision a little way up the edge of the liver. I then use a combination of my sucker, hook diathermy, and a Maryland to carefully dissect out Callow's triangle. And I'm trying to meet that dissection that I've done posteriorly. In order to obtain a critical view of safety, I'm going to ensure that that hepatocystic triangle is cleared of any fat or fibrous tissue. I'm going to mobilize the lower one third of the gallbladder and ensure this is separated from the liver in order to expose the inferior aspect of the cystic plate. And I'm also going to be sure that I can only see two structures entering the gallbladder, which should be the cystic duct and the cystic artery. Typically, I'll find the cystic artery crossing the callus triangle, and a good landmark for this is the cystic node. Sometimes I will dissect on the duct side of the artery up on the gallbladder in order to drop the artery away and open up the space in callus triangle. Once I have been satisfied that I've obtained a critical view of safety, I will take a timeout and confirm with my assistant that we can see two structures entering the gallbladder and that we do have a critical view of safety. At this point, I will then prepare to perform my cholangiogram. I organize for the C-arm to enter on the patient's right-hand side, and I'll place a five millimeter clip at the cystic duct in fundibular junction, which will help prevent flow of bile from the gallbladder down and also stop contrast from going up into the gallbladder. I then perform a ductotomy on the anterior surface of the cystic duct just below the clip that I've placed using scissors, and I'll milk the duct backwards with a Maryland or the sucker in order to clear any sludge or cystic duct stones, and also to make sure that there's a good flow of bile coming back so that there's no evidence of a distal obstruction. But I'm also mindful if there's a lot of bile that comes back quickly, this could indicate a high pressure system and a distal obstruction as well. I then prime a five French or yellow colored ureteric catheter, which is loaded into an Olsen retic with normal saline using a 20 mil syringe. And I make sure that there's no bubbles. 
I also prepare a separate 20ml syringe with a 50-50 mix of Omnipake and normal saline, again, ensuring that there's no bubbles. And I place my Johans through my epigastric port in order to straighten the cystic duct and use the Olsenretic to insert the catheter into the cystic ductotomy that I prepared earlier. And then I grasp the jaws of the Olsenretic around the duct. I flush with normal saline to ensure that it's flushing freely and I inspect visually to make sure there's no leak of saline. I change syringes to my contrast syringe and I also make sure that there's no radio-opaque equipment in the way and I position the bed to accommodate the C-arm, so ask the anaesthetist to put the bed up. I take one image to ensure the correct positioning of the C-arm for the cholangiogram and rotate the bed or the C-arm as required to make sure that the spine is not in the way. I inject contrast and take fluoroscopic images and make sure that I retract the cystic duct off the bile duct so that I can see it clearly. I then assess the cholangiogram. So firstly, I want to see flow in the distal common bile duct with no filling defects and the flow going through to the duodenum. Next, I want to see proximal filling of the common bile duct and I want to see all three proximal hepatic ducts, especially the right posterior sectoral duct. I want to make sure again that there's no filling defects and I want to assess the cystic duct and make sure I'm happy that that's what I've cannulated and that I can see the spiral valves. Once I am satisfied with the cholangiogram, I'll remove the cholangiogram catheter and olsenretic and put the patient back into the um, operative position and I double clip the cystic duct below the ductotomy and divide the duct, leaving a safe cuff of tissue beyond the clips. I also then at this stage clip and divide the cystic artery. I then dissect the gallbladder off the cystic plate by grasping Hartman's pouch with my Johan retractor and retracting it cranially, alternating left and right and using the hook diathermy in order to dissect the gallbladder off the gallbladder fossa or the cystic plate. And I avoid entering the liver substance, which can risk injuring the middle hepatic vein that can be superficial here. And any small ducts or blood vessels coming through the cystic plate that I encounter, I clip and divide. Prior to completely removing the gallbladder, I'll reassess for hemostasis and biliostasis and inspect my clips. And then once I've completely removed the gallbladder by having the assistant retract the fundus into their port and retracting the liver with my other hand, I then retrieve the gallbladder in an endocatch bag. And I do this by moving the camera to the epigastric port and placing the endocatch through the Hassan port at the umbilicus. Following this, I'll perform a washout of the right upper quadrant, uh, collect any spilt stones if the gallbladder was uh, open during the procedure, and I again assess for final hemostasis and biliostasis. I remove the gallbladder via the umbilical site after removing my ports under vision, and I close the fascia with a figure of 8-2-O-PDS suture, inject local, and use subcuticular monocryl to the skin. So that's my spiel for laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Next, I want to talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls or things that you might come across that they could ask you about in the exam. It's been told to me not to expect to be able to run through your spiel like I just did, but to be constantly interrupted with things thrown at you that you need to deal with. So thinking about the common pitfalls, I think, is a way to deal with what they may ask you in the exam. So the first thing is some variations. We did talk about this in the um, anatomy section of the hepatobiliary podcasts, but I'll just briefly mention some variations of the cystic artery and cystic duct that you may come across. So to start with the cystic artery, 
You can have multiple arteries, so more than one artery crossing the hepatocystic triangle, which can be quite confusing. And in this situation, you should follow the artery up onto the gallbladder and be sure that it's not looping back towards the liver. The cystic artery typically runs behind the common hepatic duct, but you can have variations where it runs in front. And in this situation, the the hepatic duct behind it is at risk of being injured with your dissection. You can also get a cystic artery that runs not from the right hepatic artery, so it comes from the left or even from the gastroduodenal artery, so it can take quite a strange course. And the other thing I've definitely seen before is that it may not be in the hepatocystic triangle, so it may not be between the cystic duct and the liver. It could, in fact, be running um, on the other side of the duct, so you come across it first before you get to the duct. Going to cystic duct anatomy, um, you can find that you have a very short cystic duct and you can also find that you have one that's quite long and runs parallel with the bile duct and there can even be like a fibrous connection between the two. The cystic duct can also spiral around the common hepatic duct and it can insert quite low down on the duct. And these things are quite important when talking about considering um, a transcystic bile duct exploration. You can also get a cystic duct that's draining into the right posterior sectoral duct or the right hepatic duct, which is another thing to look out for. So another pitfall is when you're trying to do your intraoperative cholangiogram, you are trying to get the ureteric catheter into your ductotomy and it's not flushing. So the reason this may be happening is that there could be a spiral valve and you're actually pushing into uh, the sort of bend in the valve and not into the duct itself. So it's good to sort of have a look and see if there are any other openings. You can use the side of the hook as well to sort of stretch it open and see if there's any other openings you could aim for. You can try changing your angle, so bending the end of the catheter and trying to approach at a different angle and then um, uh, sort of twisting your hand. You can change the tension on the duct with your right hand, so relax it a little bit or pull it straighter and tighter and see if that makes a difference. You can try enlarging the opening on the cystic duct that you've made, or if you have a good amount of cystic duct that you can see, you can make an opening slightly lower down and see if that helps if you have enough length. And the last thing to do is to try to smaller catheter. So the yellow catheter is a five French, but the blue catheter is a four French. So sometimes if you have a very small cystic duct, you can try a smaller catheter. Another problem that they may throw at you, which doesn't happen infrequently, is that you get bleeding from the liver, either from an inadvertent injury or the retractor going into a soft liver or from the liver when you're removing the gallbladder. It's more likely that this will happen if the liver is enlarged and fatty or fibrotic and also if the gallbladder is in an intrahepatic position. Typically, cauterization of the liver bed or the injury is the first step for hemostasis and you can do this by increasing the coagulation on the diathermy up to 40 and changing it to a spray function and you sort of hold the diathermy just above the liver parenchyma to try to coagulate the tissue. If that doesn't work, you can place pressure and wait. You can do some loose sutures, although these will often pull through the parenchyma. And you can also use um, flow seal or another type of hemostatic agent. The next potential pitfall or complication that we're going to talk about is controlling hemorrhage. So this is a little bit more than just a little spot oozing on the liver. You may come across this while you're doing your callos dissection. They say, oh, you notice that there's some brisk bleeding from your dissection area. What are you going to do? So I think first things first, stay calm. 
You want to put pressure on that area and you can do that using Hartman's pouch, which is in your left hand and pushing that down on the bleeding area, or you can insert a Raytec. And that's one of the reasons why I like to have a 10 mil epigastric port. You want to then wait and move on and do something else. So if you're working on the front wall and it's bleeding, you can um, press Hartman's pouch down there and do a bit more dissection up the posterior aspect next to the liver, for example, where you're going to be nice and safe. And you want to avoid blindly diatherming um, as you may injure structures that are nearby and also definitely avoid randomly clipping things that you can't see. Once you've gained control with your pressure, you may not need to do anything further. If you can see the source of bleeding and it's a vessel up on the gallbladder or in a safe area, you could diathermy it. Or if you see a um, larger vessel, you may need to put a clip on it. If there's significant bleeding and it's not resolving with pressure, then you need to put pressure on there and have a think about the likely source and have a discussion with your team and your assistants and your anaesthetist so that you can plan your next steps. And also if it's very significant bleeding so that the anaesthetist knows what's happening and they can get blood if required. The main sources of torrential bleeding at lap coli is the right hepatic artery, the portal vein or the middle hepatic vein branches. Obviously, the right hepatic artery and portal vein are more likely if you're down at the hilum, and the middle hepatic vein branches are more likely when you're dissecting the gallbladder off the liver bed. You want to make sure you have a skilled assistant and call for help if you need, and make sure that you have adequate exposure and consider an open conversion if you have significant bleeding and you have poor vision. If you're suspecting an injury to the hepatic artery, then this is often associated with a bile duct injury, so that's something to keep in mind. In these situations, in the exam, I would probably convert to open. I would call for a hepatobiliary or vascular surgeon if they were available, and I would place pressure initially. I would then try to identify the bleeding source and gain proximal and distal control, either with a sling or a bulldog clamp. And you can ligate the right hepatic artery if you need to and you're in a damage control situation, but if at all possible, you should try and repair it. And this should be done with an end-to-end anastomosis using fine, non-absorbable sutures like a 5-0 proline. Another good tip is because it's arterial bleeding, you can do a Pringles maneuver, which might help you gain temporary control and also help you identify what's happening and help you while you're doing your repair. If you're concerned that this is an injury to the portal vein, this is very difficult to manage because the blood sort of pulls and fills your vision. In this situation, again, I would say that I would open the patient. I would call for a hepatobiliary and vascular surgeon if they were available. I would control the bleeding with my finger and, again, could consider a Pringle manoeuvre, although this won't prevent back bleeding from the vein. I would dissect out the vein proximally and distally and sling uh, the vessel in order to get proximal and distal control and again carefully define the injury and try and repair this with a 5-O-proline suture. The middle hepatic vein we also mentioned and this can be very superficial in the cystic plate. I saw this happen the other day where the gallbladder was removed and suddenly we were looking side on at the vein. So In this situation, you want to place pressure and remove the rest of the gallbladder in order to get adequate exposure and view, although you could leave the fundus on and put the gallbladder over the liver and use that to retract the liver up for your vision. 
They talk about putting the patient in the head-up position, which reduces the venous return from the legs and may reduce the amount of bleeding. Um, And you also want to talk to your anaesthetist because they can get an air embolism and it's good that the anaesthetist knows that this may happen. In this situation, you're going to want to suture the vein. So using something like a 3O-PDS or 3O-Proline, you would put some figure of eight sutures and you just want to gently tie these because you want to avoid tearing through the parenchyma. And then you can use other hemostatic agents after you've gained control. So now we've fixed the bleeding, let's make this gallbladder go from bad to worse. So let's talk about the difficult gallbladder. You may anticipate that a gallbladder is going to be difficult because a patient's had multiple episodes of cholecystitis or cholangitis. If they've had a previous ERCP, if they have had multiple episodes of pancreatitis, if there's significant wall thickening on the ultrasound, patients who have cirrhosis, patients who are obese and may have steatosis, and patients who may have a Maritzi syndrome, although you might want to manage them differently than going straight to cholecystectomy if you suspect Maritzi preoperatively. So in terms of tackling these Intraoperatively, some tips and tricks include decompressing the gallbladder, which we talked about, um, as an acute gallbladder or if there's a mucosal, can make it difficult to grasp. You can get your assistant to grasp lower down on the gallbladder if you don't have good retraction because of a big heavy liver um, in order to lift up higher and gain better access to the hepatocystic triangle. You can decompress the stomach and duodenum with an orogastric tube. And if you have a very obese patient with a lot of a mental fat that's obscuring your view, um, you can put an extra port in. I usually like to do this uh, just to the left-hand side of the falciform and um, use a fan retractor in order to push down the fat. You want to lift up and out with Hartman's pouch and do this using a pretty strong hand, but you have to be mindful that you can tent up the bile duct when you do this. And all those things we talked about in the lap coli, so identifying your line of safety for dissection between the rivia sulcus and base of segment four and staying above that are really important. You can use hydrodissection in the line of structures using your sucker. And for a difficult hepatocystic triangle, um, as I've mentioned, it's good to try to form the window from posteriorly in order to then just fall into that gap anteriorly. It helps a lot with the dissection. But say you've done all these things and you just cannot get a critical view of safety. There's a few bailout options. Bailout option one is do nothing, do a cholecystostomy, put in a big drain tube and come back to fight another day or don't, depending on the situation. Bailout two is to open, which may help you palpate and feel structures more accurately and it can help you sort of finger fracture out the area that you're trying to dissect. The bailout three, which I think is becoming more and more common, is to perform a subtotal cholecystectomy. And there's two different types of subtotal cholecystectomy, which include a fenestrating, which is where you don't leave a remnant, and a reconstituting, where you are leaving a small remnant gallbladder. So what a subtotal cholecystectomy involves is opening the gallbladder at Hartman's pouch, and you want to remove all of the stones. You can't leave any stones in there, otherwise you are committing this patient to another operation. 
You then basically excise the gallbladder around that line that you've opened up Hartman's pouch and remove the gallbladder. And you can leave the um, back wall of the gallbladder on the liver if you need to and just diathermy the mucosa, or if you can get that off, then that's great as well. So then you're left with this little cuff of Hartman's pouch, which theoretically the cystic duct will be at the base of. You can try to do a cholangiogram through the cystic duct if possible, and this will help you define your anatomy and make sure that there's no ductal injury and no other stones. But sometimes the cystic duct is obliterated because of the pathology, so this may or may not be possible. So then you have those two options of what to do with your remnant gallbladder. A fenestrating is where you place a little purse string suture around the cystic duct in order to close it off and then you leave Hartman's pouch open and you put a drain. This type of subtotal cholecystectomy has a slightly higher rate of bile leak after surgery but this mostly will self-resolve. The reconstituting is where you close the little cuff of Hartman's pouch that you have left and usually this is done with some laparoscopic suturing and again you definitely want to leave a drain. And the risk with this is that you are leaving a small gallbladder remnant so they can have retained or they can form new stones in this gallbladder remnant. I've heard a lot of debate around what we should be doing, um, whether we should be opening or doing a subtotal cholecystectomy. I think for the exam, it's from my point of view, becoming more and more accepted to do a laparoscopic subtotal cholecystectomy. And the argument is that trainees nowadays don't do a lot of open gallbladders and it's not necessarily going to be easier just because you open and that there's still a risk of a bile duct injury. So I think in the exam, I would probably go with a subtotal, um, but I'm happy to be guided if people think that that is controversial still. So you may have realized by now that this gallbladder is just going to get worse and worse. Now we have talked about the difficult gallbladder and how to avoid a bile duct injury. Let's talk about bile duct injuries. So only about a third of bile duct injuries are recognized intraoperatively. And you might notice that there's bile leaking at the end of the case, that you find a second duct or you could notice that you have an abnormal finding on your intraoperative cholangiogram. An intraoperative cholangiogram doesn't necessarily reduce the rates of bile duct injuries, but it does help with intraoperative identification. In general, the risk factors for bile duct injury can be divided into patient factors, pathology factors, anatomical factors, and surgical factors. So patient factors include patients who've had previous surgery or those who have cirrhosis. Pathology factors are things like Maritzi syndrome, acute cholecystitis with lots of inflammation and inflammation at the porta hepatis. And scarring and inflammation at the porta hepatis is more likely in the setting of a previous ERCP. Anatomical variations also increase the risk of a bile duct injury, especially if there's a short cystic duct. And in about 25% of patients, there's a low insertion of the right sectional duct, which puts it at risk of injury. Surgical factors include things like poor retraction or too much retraction, uh, poor equipment and visualization. They talk about a perceptual illusion where basically surgeons will mistake the CBD for the um, cystic duct or the right hepatic artery for the cystic artery. And this can be related to experience, but also can just be related to misinterpreting the situation. 
So we've already talked a little bit about how to prevent bile duct injuries, obviously operating above the line of safety between rubius sulcus and the base of segment four, obtaining your critical view of safety, having your timeout, which I mentioned in the operative part, prior to clipping or dividing any structures. They also talk about using a 30-degree scope to look around the corners when you're doing your posterior and anterior dissection and making sure you have high-quality imaging. Avoiding diathermy near the common hepatic duct and staying right on the gallbladder and gallbladder cystic duct junction, so keeping your dissection high. Early decompression of the gallbladder is important in order to obtain good retraction and constantly reassessing and identifying your anatomy is also really important. Some of the red flags that may make you suspicious or should make you suspicious that maybe you have a perceptual illusion and what you're dissecting is not in fact the cystic duct and artery are if a large clip doesn't appear to completely encompass a cystic duct, you really need to be thinking, is this a cystic duct if your nine millimeter clip isn't going around it? And if you notice that you're finding other ductal or vascular structures while you're dissecting out callos that probably shouldn't be there, again, you need to reconsider your anatomy. Specifically, the presence of an artery behind the duct is a red flag because the right hepatic artery runs posterior to the common bile duct. Also, any duct that can be traced without interruption down behind the duodenum is also probably the common bile duct. If you encounter lots of bleeding, it's another sign you're probably in the wrong spot. And you should routinely perform an intraoperative cholangiogram, or at least that's going to be my approach in the exam, which will help you identify any injuries. If you're doing your cholangiogram and you notice that there's a lot of contrast leaking, if the proximal hepatic ducts fail to opacify, or if you can't see the three intrahepatic ducts, especially the right posterior sectoral duct, then these could all be signs that you have a bile duct injury. So what to do if you think you have a bile duct injury at lap coli? First thing is what not to do. You should not be fixing your own common bile duct injury. There's only about a 17% success rate if you do it, but up to a 94% if you involve a second surgeon. So you should document what's happened. Take lots and lots of photos. See if you can classify what the injury is and do a cholangiogram if at all possible. And call for help. So call for a colleague, call for a hepatobiliary surgeon if there's one next door. And if not, again, call for help, get some intraoperative phone advice, place large drains and transfer the patient to a tertiary centre and make sure that you do a good handover around what happened intraoperatively and the time course of when the injury actually happened. Just briefly, we'll go over the different types of bile duct injury. So the classification system is A to E, with E being the bismuth classification, which is what we talked about for hyla cholangiocarcinoma. So a type A injury is where there's an injury to a duct of Lushka or a leak from the cystic duct. A type B injury is where the right posterior sectoral duct has been clipped or occluded. A type C injury is where the right posterior sectoral duct is leaking. A type D injury is where there's been a nick or an injury to the duct with leakage of bile, but there's not a full circumferential injury and no actual major tissue or duct loss. So it's not been excised. And type E is the bismuth classification. So type E is where there's a full circumferential injury to the duct and the distance from the confluence determines the subtype. So there's E1 to 5. E1 is where the injury is 
more than two centimetres from the confluence. E2 is where there's less than two centimetres from the confluence. E3 is injury to the confluence, but the confluence is still intact. E4 is where the injury is above the confluence or there's complete destruction of the confluence. And E5 is where you have injury to the main bile duct and you also have an additional injury to the right posterior sectoral duct. It's important to note that this does not take into account any concomitant vascular injury and also doesn't describe the mechanism of injury or the timing of detection. I can highly recommend as well a podcast episode from the AHPBA podcast where for episode 10, they actually interviewed Dr. Steven Strasberg, who made this classification, and they talk about bile duct injuries. It's a really good podcast episode you should totally have a listen to. I'm not going to go into detail for what to do with a bile duct injury because it depends on quite a few factors. And our curriculum for bile duct injury says drain and refer. So they definitely don't want us to be fixing these things. But in general, an intraoperative identification of an injury has a better outcome than a delayed identification. Hepatobiliary surgeons may consider a primary repair for an early or intraoperatively identified partial injury where there's not any significant devascularization of the bile duct or a diathermy injury, um, as that thermal injury can later sort of progress and cause a stricture formation. But they usually wouldn't do this for a complete transection. T-tubes are often talked about with bile duct injuries, but from what I understand, these are sort of going out of fashion. Other options include endoscopic stent placement, including multiple plastic or a fully covered metal stent for a partial injury. And for a significant injury with devascularization or tissue loss, a hepaticojejunostomy is typically the repair of choice. So the last intraoperative pitfall or little segue that the examiners might throw at you that I wanted to talk about is what to do if you find common bile duct stones intraoperatively. Common bile duct stones are found at lap coli about 5 to 15% of the time, depending on which study you're looking at. Initially, the options include trying to flush the stones through, so I would start by asking the anaesthetist to give either glucagon or buscopan, both of which will help to relax the sphincter of Oddi and hopefully allow passage of the stones. So for glucagon, it's one milligram intravenously, and for buscopan, it's 10 milligrams intravenously. And for buscopan, you want to wait until you hear the tachycardia that tells you that the buscopan is working. Once it's working, I would then flush the duct with 20 to 40 mils of normal saline and then repeat the cholangiogram to see whether or not the stones have flushed down. If I'm not successful, then I would make an assessment of the anatomy. So I want to have a look at the size of the stones, how many stones there are and where they are. So whether they're in the common bile duct or in the common hepatic duct above the insertion of the cystic duct. And you want to also have a look at the cystic duct. How wide is it? How long is it? And what the size of the bile duct is. Based on all this information, you then have a number of options. These include intraoperative and postoperative procedures to clear the bile duct. So the intraoperative procedures include a laparoscopic transcystic common bile duct exploration, as well as a laparoscopic cholidochotomy or an open cholidochotomy. And the postoperative approaches include 
ERCP and removal of the stones or PTC and removal of the stones. In practice, I've seen laparoscopic transistic bile duct exploration done at the time of surgery. And if that's not successful, then often patients will then proceed to a post-operative ERCP. I've only ever really seen open cholidocotomy performed in the setting of really big stones that weren't able to be taken out by other means such as ERCP. In our curriculum, it says in our operative does that we need to know how to do an open exploration of the common bile duct, so an open cholidocotomy, as well as laparoscopic transistic exploration of the common bile duct. And then in our operative nose, it says that we need to know how to do a laparoscopic exploration of the common bile duct or a laparoscopic cholidocotomy. So firstly, I'm going to start by talking about a laparoscopic transistic bile duct exploration and how I would say in the exam that I would perform this procedure. So firstly, a laparoscopic transistic exploration is good for patients who have a dilated duct, those who have a short and straight cystic duct, and if there's a stone that's small and located distally, because you want to be able to make sure you can get to it and it's much harder to turn back and go up the common hepatic duct than it is to go down towards the bile duct. And also you need to make sure the stone is going to actually fit out of the cystic duct and that you're not going to evolve the cystic duct when you're trying to pull it through. So on the flip side of that, this would be bad for patients with a long cystic duct that's narrow. If the cystic duct insertion is very posterior or distal on the common bile duct, if there's lots of spiral valves, if there's numerous stones, or if there's a big stone. And I've seen varying numbers for this, but anything over about six millimeters, I think would be difficult to get out of the cystic duct. And obviously stones that are located above the cystic duct, common bile duct junction can be difficult. So I would explain this as how I would approach this using II to start. So I would make sure that I had all of the equipment available and I would ask for a uh, 2.4 French nitinol tipped stone extractor, which is a little netted basket that can pass down the ureteric catheter. I would ask for a 7 French 4 centimeter biliary stent with a pusher and a 150 centimeter urology wire with a soft straight tip that was hydrophilic. I would also make sure that I had an attachment in order to flush the contrast down, given I'll be doing this under II. So first things first, I would make sure I was wearing lead and have the C-arm coming in from the patient's right-hand side. I would dissect the cystic duct down as far as it was safe to do so in order to straighten out any spiral valves. And I ask for a bariatric port in order to place the tip of the port right next to the cystic duct otomy. And I do this so that the instruments going down this ductotomy aren't going to loop outside of that um, from the port. So then I use a wire and I feed the wire down the ureteric catheter into the duodenum. And I might need to manipulate the wire back and forth under II until it passes past the stone and through the ampulla into the duodenum. And I pass a lot of wire at that point so that it's not going to flip out while I'm doing the next steps. I then pass the sheath of the ureteric catheter down over the wire until I'm just proximal to the stone. I then pass the nitinol basket down the ureteric catheter and open it up to try and catch and extract the stone. I can also pass the basket down into the duodenum and gently pull it back through the ampulla to try to catch the stones as the basket is slowly withdrawn along the duct. 
I want to try to close the basket around the stone and under fluoroscopy I might find that the basket doesn't close fully which might be a sign that I've caught the stone. I then repeat the process and I can add more contrast as necessary until the duct is clear. And once I've cleared the duct, I then do a completion cholangiogram and make sure the cystic duct is secure. The next option is to use a cholidocoscope. Cholidocoscope is a very tiny little scope that you can pass down through the bile duct. And typically in my institution, we have a three millimeter cholidocoscope, which has a equipment channel. If you're going to use a cholidocoscope, you need a couple of other bits of equipment. So you'll need IV tubing for saline installation, which is um, passed via the scope in order to insufflate the bile duct so you can see what you're doing. You also need a second light source and camera and a second laparoscopic tower and also a padded grasper so you can manipulate the tip of the scope without damaging it. I would again use a nitinol tipped stone extractor, make sure I had a soft guide wire and I would do everything that I explained before, making sure the port is next to the ductotomy, and then I'd pass that five French ureteric catheter down the cystic duct, feed the wire down, and again, may need to manipulate the wire back and forth. And then I pass the cholidocoscope over the wire through that mid-clavicular port, and I might need to use a padded grasper in my right hand in order to feed the tip of the cholidocoscope into the cystic ductotomy. And I would then start to use continuous irrigation in order to facilitate visualization in the bile duct. And I'd feed the cholidocoscope down to the stone and then pull the wire out and pass the nitinol basket through the working channel, pass the stone, and again, open it up and draw it back to try to get the stone to fall into the basket, which I would then close. Once the stone was caught, I'd pull the stone and the cholidocoscope out together and then pass the cholidocoscope back down through the bile duct to confirm that there are no stones left and you can actually pass it into the duodenum as well and at the end I would always do a completion cholangiogram in order to ensure uh, that there are no stones further up and that there's good flow of contrast into the duodenum and again make sure the cystic duct is ligated safely. I mentioned earlier that I would ask for a 7 French 4 centimeter biliary stent to be in the room. This is my bailout option if I'm not successful in retrieving the stone. Passing a stent past the ampulla buys time um, because you're decompressing the system, so you're not going to blow out the cystic stump while you're waiting for a definitive ERCP. And especially when you're not doing ERCPs every day, this means you might be able to get the patient home and back on an elective list. So the technique for this is, again, um, everything I've said about setting up and having the port next to your cystic ductotomy. I then pass the wire down again into the duodenum. Once I've done this, I then feed the stent onto the wire and then put the pusher behind it, which I attach to the contrast. And I visualize with the camera as I'm pushing the stent down through the ductotomy to make sure it passes easily. And then I start injecting contrast and using the II in order to watch the stent pass down um, and make sure that it's crossing the ampulla. Depending on what stent you use, the Cook system has two little markers that should both be proximal to the ampulla. So don't push them through because the stent will fall into the duodenum. Again, once I've done this, I remove everything and secure the cystic duct. As I mentioned earlier, I strongly believe that ERCP would be the next step for a failed transcystic exploration. A laparoscopic or open cholidocotomy can be a pretty morbid procedure um, and obviously an endoscopic approach would be better for the patient if possible. However, saying that, we have been asked to learn how to do an open cholidocotomy and 
to know how to do a laparoscopic collar dichotomy. So I'm just going to briefly mention these. A laparoscopic and open collar dichotomy may be good for um, patients who have big stones in a big duct. You don't want to have a small duct because it's much higher risk of having a stricture after this procedure. Um, in patients who are immunosuppressed or have poor wound healing, they have a much higher risk of a bar leak as well. Um, so obviously you try to avoid that unless you had to. So for an open cholidochotomy, I would perform a subcostal incision and mobilize the hepatic flexure and retract that inferiorly. I would use a self-retaining retractor such as a Thompson's retractor in order to have adequate exposure and I would do a Cocker's maneuver in order to mobilize the duodenum and facilitate access to the anterior aspect of the common bile duct. I'd perform a cholecystectomy if that had not been performed and then I would expose the superior anterior aspect of the bile duct. I would incise the anterior surface of the common bile duct, being mindful that the blood supply is radial in the uh, three and nine o'clock position. So I would try to avoid involving the blood supply. And I do this with an 11 scalpel blade in a longitudinal direction. I then can use my hand to milk out any large impacted stones and can use stone forceps in order to um, grasp stones and pull them out through my cholidochotomy. Another option is to pass a balloon catheter, such as a Fogarty catheter, um, a four, four French or five French, depending on the size of the duct, in order to pass it past the stones and blow the balloon up and trawl backwards to bring stones up to the cholidochotomy. And it may also help remove debris um, or impacted distal stones. Um, I can also use a wire basket, both proximally and distally, in order to remove stones as you would with a transcystic bile duct exploration, and can also use a cholidochotomy to visualize and look up and down the bile duct as well. Once I've removed all of the stones, I then repair the cholidochotomy. The options for this include a primary repair with uh, four or five O PDS sutures or, and leaving a drain, or repairing it over a T-tube. And if you're going to use a T-tube, you want to use uh, the largest T-tube that the duct will accept and cut the ends so that they're beveled, as well as opening the back wall of the T-tube. So when you pull it out, it will collapse and won't damage the bile duct. And you want to secure that in place with interrupted PDS sutures. And again, leave a drain even if you're leaving a T-tube and make sure that the patient has a completion cholangiogram and you close in layers. In terms of a laparoscopic cholidochotomy, the principles are pretty much the same. It's sort of a, a combination of a laparoscopic transistic exploration and open. So you do the same thing, expose the anterior surface of the bile duct, and you divide the peritoneum overlying the supraduodenal bile duct in order to expose that anterior surface. And again, you want to perform a cholidochotomy on the anterior surface of the bile duct in a longitudinal direction. And you can do this using a laparoscopic scalpel or the cutting diathermy and then extend it with scissors. You can then use a sucker to suction out bile and small stones and sludge. Um, you can insert an ERCP balloon and pass it proximally up to the liver and then distally as well, um, blowing the balloon up and trawling it backwards to try to pull stones out through the otomy. You can use a stone grasper to grasp and remove larger stones. And I saw in, in one video people got an endocatch bag and cut off the handle and just left it in there and you can place the stones in there to pull out at the end. You can also gently milk the duct with a sucker or an atraumatic grasper in order to bring stones up. And you may need to use a knit and basket to snare stones, especially if they're impacted. 
You can also, again, use a colidocoscope to pass through the ductotomy to see if there's any stones remaining or to guide a basket and if you have a difficult to remove stone. And you can also pass a stent just like you would at a transistic exploration, um, especially if you've needed to do a lot of manipulation, you, you can get um, ampullary edema, which can cause back pressure on your cholidocotomy repair. So again, you would have to laparoscopically suture closed the cholidocotomy, and we always use absorbable sutures on the bile duct so that you don't make a little nidus for stones. So four or five O PDS would be a good choice and leave a big drain next to your repair. And that's as bad as I'm going to let that gallbladder get. I must say that's a very bad day. I hope you learned something from this episode. I'm going to try to do some more operative episodes, mainly because I want to keep myself honest and start talking about operations. So let me know if you think I should have done something differently. And I'll try to talk through operations, but also what sort of pitfalls we might face, which I think should be hopefully relevant for the exam. As usual, leave me a review, rate the podcast and subscribe wherever you listen so that other people are able to find the podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>